0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: I'm Jesse Thorne. For the longest time, Michael Kupperman didn't know that much about his dad. I mean, he knew his dad. He was around his whole childhood. He knew his dad went to Cambridge, then Harvard. He knew that at one point his dad was kind of famous. He was a quiz kid regular game show contestant in the early days of TV. But beyond the basics, his dad didn't really talk about that. So, one day, Michael's in college, starting to figure out who he is. He falls in love with comedy, and with one comedy act in particular, the Marx Brothers.
2: And I was reading a book about the Marx Brothers, and I turned the page, and there was my father with Chico. And that was intense shock, because he was... (sighs) He was not a person who was very into comedy, and he certainly, I think, partly discouraged me from having a career that was closer to comedy because he considered it frivolous. So to realize that he had performed with some of the greatest comedians of all time was kind of a hard pill to swallow.
1: It's bullseye. Coming up, artist and writer Michael Kuberman talks about the fascinating, sometimes painful journey of discovery that went into his new graphic memoir, All the Answers. He spent years digging through archives, learning stuff about his father that he'd never imagined. So
2: I was aware that he had been famous, but I don't think I really understood until I started to work on this book the quality of his fame, just exactly how he had been famous and how emotional it was. Uh, both for the people who were fascinated by him and for him personally.
1: But before Michael Kupperman, Maura Tierney, star of ER, News Radio, The Affair, and the new film Beautiful Boy, she'll talk about all those projects, plus why she starred alongside Jerry Orbach in the 1991 smash hit Dead Women in Lingerie. I think it was supposed to be like
0: a spoof of like Brian De Palma type. It was supposed to be that, uh, but it. I, 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 I listen. I, we all we I, 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 we we do things. We sometimes. <laughs>
1: and finally, I'll tell you about Sly Stone's last great album. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Maura Tierney this week. Couldn't be more excited about it. You know her from her time on the hit drama E. R. She played Abby. She's currently on the showtime series, The Affair. And this is something very close to my heart. She also starred on news radio as Lisa, the ambitious reporter producer.
0: Look, I just I just think it would be better if we didn't speak for a while. That's all. Uh uh-huh, that's gonna be kind of awkward seeing as we work together, won't it? Well, there's other methods of communicating besides speaking. Do you mean sex? Because I thought we'd stop doing that. Mm -hmm. Memos. Memos? Written memos. That's absurd.
2: (laughs) Absurd or not, you've got to give me some space for a while.
1: She's currently starring in an acclaimed drama that just hit theaters. It's called Beautiful Boy. It's a story about the complex, nuanced, and frustrating nature of addiction. It stars Timothee Chalamet as Nick, a college-age kid struggling with a drug habit. Maura plays Karen, Nick's stepmom. Beautiful Boy is as unique as it is realistic. Addiction is a complicated thing. It brings some people closer together, drives others away, has ups and downs, and it's never over. Let's hear a little bit from the movie. Nick's father, David, played by Steve Carell, just got a call from his ex-wife, Vicky, in L.A. Their son, Nick, played by Timothee Chalamet, Went missing again david is getting ready to fly out to help find him in this scene he's talking about it with morris character karen how do we even know he's in la i mean he could be in san francisco he could be he could be
0: in mexico for all we know i need to go yeah but i need
1: you to stay well vicky can't handle it i don't care about vicky
0: this isn't about
1: vicky why don't you just relax and try to be reasonable.
0: What? You be reasonable? I am being reasonable. Is this reasonable? No, it's not!
1: How can I be? My son is out there somewhere and I don't know what he's doing! I don't know how to help him! You can't! Moira welcome to Bullseye. I'm so glad to have you on the show.
0: <laughs> Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> That's funny to hear that.
1: <clears throat> it's like so emotionally overwhelming that there is. It's difficult to have any other reaction to it outside of context.
0: It's just funny. To, it's just funny. I don't, I, it was such so long ago that we did it, um, and it's so funny that he doesn't he tell her to relax. Is that what he says? Relax. No.
1: That's so <laughs> infuriating
0: <laughs> when someone tells you to relax and you're perfectly justifiably upset.
1: I I feel like the movie was a real ringer for me, and I think one of the reasons is that I find it incredibly emotionally challenging to deal with unresolvable problems. <laughs> Not in the sense that, you know, like obviously it's hard to resolve unresolvable problems, yeah. but even a small thing that can't find its way to an end will really eat me up. And mm-hmm. in some ways that's kind of what the movie is about.
0: Yeah, I mean— do you mean in life or, or when you wa- watch in, things?
1: Uh, yes, both. Yes, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> That—that's what I was drawn to about the film uh, is how many times Timmy's character fails, uh, and Nick in real life failed, which I found ultimately hopeful um, because he had to try for many years, and he was successful sometimes for a year or a year and a half, or two years, and then he would relapse. And I feel like the movie never judges the relapses and and doesn't even look at them as failure. He just starts over. And I found that ultimately a hopeful kind of message that sometimes it's going to take a long time. And it's okay if you keep at it, you know. So in some sense, it was resolvable? What was the thing that you said? I'm sorry. Yeah, I think
1: resolvable. Yeah.
0: I mean, in real life, you know, it did resolve itself. Um, But dramatically, yeah, it's frustrating to watch. The movie's really, it's not the easiest movie in the world to watch.
1: You play the stepmother Mm -hmm. to uh, the addicted person in this film. And that is a very particular kind of relationship. How did you think about being a person who has two young kids of her own in the household and a husband that she loves very much and a stepchild who is both part of your family and this, like, you know, terrifying, disrupting force. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I spoke to Karen several times, who is extremely uh, forthcoming. She's very funny. She was very frank and very honest. Um... I think he was first and foremost part of the family. I mean, that other scary part was there, but always for her. She met him, and he was, I think, four or five. And she said they met, and they sat down, Karen's a painter, and they just started painting and drawing together. And she said immediately they bonded. And she had a deep sense of gratitude to Nick, even when he was four, for opening up to her. and And she really was sort of in awe of what his sort of amazing charisma. And again, there was a gratitude that he let her in. And so they were very, very close. I think when things started to go haywire, it was a deep conflict for her. And I think it took until it got to extremes before she had to start viewing him as other. It took a lot because he was her son for all intents and purposes. It's just... One of her children started becoming slightly dangerous to her other children. I think that's how she viewed it. Not at, Her stepson got f-ed up, so her other kids were in trouble. It was a deep conflict for her. It was like, you know, he was her son.
1: Um, I w- want to shift gears and, and talk a little bit about your life and the rest of your career. Mm-hmm. Um, you grew up in Boston, and you're father was a city councilman. In fact, he was a city council president mm-hmm. for a time and a candidate for mayor at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a
0: president six, five times, six times. Uh, it was like a lot for that time. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: he he first ran for city council when you were a kid, like you were in elementary school, right?
0: Yeah, I think I was like seven or eight or something like that.
1: What did you think about it at the time?
0: Oh, I loved it. We had the best time. Um, because Boston has a political city, and we would hang out at headquarters. I mean, I was young the first time, really, really young. But then he ran, I think, every two years. So by the time I was 10 or 12 or 14, like, we canvassed, dropping – we'd call it doing drops. would drop leaflets for him and do phone calls from headquarters and just hang out at headquarters. And, like, there were so many colorful people that came in and so many interesting – crazy kind of boston
1: political hardcore characters i mean you were an adult you were a young adult by then were you were you already acting professionally
0: i was i mean the plan was i was i was going to go back to boston i had moved to la just for the summer i graduated college and i was a bunch of my friends moved out here so i was just going to come out for a couple of months and waitress and hang out with them and then go back in september and work on my dad's campaign and i and i i got a job which i wasn't really
1: expecting to do um what was the job
0: Student exchange, TV movie. I played a mean cheerleader.
1: You don't usually play mean.
0: I don't. It's like the only real character work I've ever got <laughs> I mean, it's all character work. But yeah, I was the mean. I mean, in the end, she turned out okay. The
1: occasional yeah. scold, maybe. Yeah. Uh, did You have a good disapproval tick.
0: Yeah. But <laughs> yes, I was the, the mean
1: cheerleader. I actually, I pulled something. Oh, no. Is I it know. that
0: me in, as a mean cheerleader? No. Uh, oh, it's worse than that, it's probably. Not from Dead Women in Lingerie, is it? Yes. No! <laughs> what the heck?
1: You know, they it got Don't, the internet now. You're not
0: to play anything from it, are you? Yeah, so no!
1: in this scene from the Don't! 1991 film Dead Women in Lingerie, <gasps> oh my God. Molly, the lingerie designer, played oh, by my guest Maura oh my Tierney, God. is being yes. interrogated by a police <laughs> officer A second immigrant seamstress and lingerie model who worked for the same factory as Molly had been murdered. And Bartoli, the owner of the factory, is sitting observing the back and forth. That was
0: Jerry, right? Right? Yeah, and
1: Bartoli was played by the late, great Jerry Orbach.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He was great. I don't know what the hell he was doing in that movie. Okay.
1: Well, it shouldn't surprise you. These girls were illegals. They come to the States to make money, and let's face it. Prostitution is a pretty easy way to pick up some extra cash.
0: I knew both Marsha and Sylvia, and there's no way that either one of them would have been involved in anything like that. And I'm sorry, but I think you're way out of line.
1: Molly, here. please. Look, the fact is, the only leads we have are that both girls worked here, and they were both killed and found in the lingerie you designed.
0: I know, but maybe... Now, hold
1: with... on, little lady. Let me finish. Little lady. We've got some kind of kook running around out there. <laughs> oh, my God. We have that happen a lot in this part of town. Maybe he's finished. Maybe he'll try it again. We'll just have to wait and see. I don't have a whole hell of a lot to go on.
0: Wait and see? That's it?
1: Just in case, just tell your girls to take care. Thanks for your time.
2: Okay, okay, don't start up with me, all right?
0: But he's not gonna do anything.
2: Uh, What do you want him to do? He's not Superman.
1: There's the late, great Jerry Orbach.
0: Oh, gosh. That's a funny. <laughs> he, he had his character drink Pepto-Bismol all the time when he put strawberry quick in the milk, the pink milk. <laughs> yeah.
1: It was nice. I think, feel like that movie maybe did not come out until it came out on DVD it years later or something.
0: I think the woman who directed it was an accountant. <laughs> I'm not even kidding you. And what is that weird kind of weird half accent I'm doing I don't even know Oh my gosh that was I that's really funny
1: I guess he was on law and order by 1991 but I was going to say like at the what very least you're it? talking 1991 that it came out
0: I don't think he was was he
1: I don't know well at the very well, would least have done he was that job. <laughs> Jerry Orbach <laughs> I, from the Fantastics yes, right He
0: was Jerry Orbach for sure but I don't know if he had it I don't know I mean I think it was supposed to be like a spoof of like Brian De Palma type it was supposed to be that, uh, but it. I, 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 I listen. I, we all we, I, 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 we we do things. We sometimes.
1: <laughs> You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Maura Tierney. She's the star of Showtime's The Affair and the new film Beautiful Boy, which is out now. How did you get the part on News Radio? Uh,
0: I auditioned for it someone's one of i don't know it was sort of amazing to get but i do remember it was me and one other actors who I, I forget who it was at the time but they flew us both out and we both read with dave foley like we both we went into the, the studio or the network i don't know was the table read was that day so that doesn't often happen that both of the or it hadn't happened to me that both of the actresses are there and sort of she went in and i went in or whatever order it was um And then we both went back to these little trailers and then like Paul came in and was like, oh, you're staying. So then we just did the table read in in like an hour or something after that. So it was really fast.
1: I mean, it's like, did you know that was the stakes when you showed up? Like, did you know that in two hours you were either going to be on a network television program or not?
0: Yes, I did know. Yeah, I was really nervous. But Dave Foley was really great. He he was just great and, um, and also, um the director, of course, Jimmy Burroughs. like we got together in somebody's trailer and sort of rehearsed I think I don't know if they did it with the other actress, they probably did um it was really great, and it probably made it easier to not have to worry about it that much, like I got the job, and then we were doing it.
1: I want to play a scene from the pilot, so it's a show about a radio station. And Dave is uh, played by Dave Foley, and he's there for his first day at the radio station as news director. (laughs) And he learns that the the current news director, Ed, has not yet been fired. And so most everybody thinks Dave is the new sports reporter. So he follows Lisa, who is uh, the star reporter, who's played by my guest, Maura Tierney, into a recording booth in the newsroom. She's working on a story. She's only kind of paying attention to him. And she wanted to be the news director. And she assumes that. Jimmy James, the squajillionaire owner of the station, is planning to hire her as the new news director. And Dave is trying to figure out what she knows and how to break the news to her. How do you think I should handle this?
0: Oh, just do your job well and you'll be fine. Because when Ed goes, Jimmy's going to make me news director. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Is this this something that Jimmy has told you no but uh, nobody else around here has been putting in 12-hour days nights and weekends for three years and jimmy notices believe me lisa miller wnyx news radio in chinatown Um, excuse me uh lisa uh lisa have you ever have you ever heard the expression that the journey is its own reward (laughs) that's very profound dave you know for a sports guy um, That's so, Paul, journey is its own reward.
1: <laughs> I really love news radio. Um, and I think one of the great pleasures of the show is watching you and Dave Foley working together because you are both a very rare type of comic actor, which is a funny straight man. Um, I was more the
0: straight man than he, but Yeah.
1: I, but I think in in that's that's true mm-hmm. but you get a lot of non-reaction laughs and uh you know you get a lot of you give him a lot of reaction laughs you you play with each other.
0: Yeah, and they wrote it well that way for us, yeah.
1: And yeah, like that is such a that is such a rare skill. Um and it's also something you don't you don't get to see you don't get to see two people doing that together very often because there were very crazy characters on news radio, right. but neither of your characters were particularly So, And so watching the two of you do comedy together is just, is just a joy.
0: I mean, that's thank you. Um, but that's probably why they could do it because there were so many out there characters that they could take that those moments for a little bit of respite. That was a little bit more about, again, it was because of the writing... Because we knew who these characters were, they didn't have to say too much, because you knew how they were going to respond to each other. And Dave's just the best, you know. He's he's hilarious.
1: Yeah, no, he's a yeah. he's a brilliant genius yeah. and yeah, a yeah, lovely yeah. man as yeah. well. After news radio, you were on ER for a thousand years. Yeah, um,
0: I think it was only more about nine hundred. Yeah, rest. okay, yeah, um, just under.
1: On the one hand, like in many ways. Being on ER at the time, best job in television probably, like uh, probably paid pretty good, mm-hmm. one of the most successful shows on television, if not the most successful, depending on where in that time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was
0: pretty up there when I joined. I joined in season seven, but it was still like like pretty up there.
1: And, you know, b- big ensemble, so mm-hmm. it's not even like you have to be on camera all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, that is so long, <laughs>
0: It is, but I have to say, I mean, uh, uh, they took really good care of me, those writers. I've been very lucky so far. I got to knock on. Is anything wood in here? I'll find yeah, that's it. That's
1: acoustic foam.
0: Okay. Uh, uh, there were some years where it was a little bit trying. And I, and I, I think it was probably like the fifth season I was there or the sixth. And I went to the writers, and there was—I mean, I had so much great stuff to do. The first season, I was there for only half a year, and it was Juliana's exit. So there wasn't so much for me to do, and I got time to set up the character in a really slow way. So I eased in for half a season, really. And then the next two, you know, Sally Field played my mother, which was an amazing experience, like, really amazing. And I learned so much from her. And her performance basically created that character, the character of Abby watching Sally because then you knew why this person was the way she was. So that all of that was really rewarding and really interesting. And then you know it uh, in the middle there it was a—I was a little bored and I went to the writers and they were like there was there was just too much Abby. We need to like put you on the back burner. They were very upfront about it. And they were like it's like a palate cleanser like, cuz you know she her mother was crazy and bipolar, so that there was a lot more just supporting work to do, like passing shit in the trauma room and stuff like that. But that was okay, too, because I really loved everybody. I mean, the whole time wasn't the most challenging. There was a lag there in the middle. But by the end, they really gave me some great stuff to play, really great, great stuff. So I'm grateful for that. I, you know, my character didn't just, like, sail off into the sunset. She really went out kind of with a bang.
1: We'll finish up my conversation with Maura Tierney after a quick break. Stay with us. Plus, graphic novelist Michael Kupperman on learning about his father's past as one of the most famous game show contestants in American history. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the app that teaches you to speak for yourself in a new language. Want to gift something that could last a lifetime? Give one of 24 languages this season and help your loved one thrive in real-world conversations. Built by experts, not crowdsourcing, Rosetta Stone goes beyond simple vocabulary with bite-sized lessons. Visit rosettastone.com NPR for their best offer of the year. Merry mingling. The StoryCorps podcast
0: returns this fall with 12 all-new episodes about reunions. This week, what it's like to spend years searching for a father, only to find someone you didn't even know you were looking for. Hear more on the StoryCorps podcast. Episodes are available every Tuesday.
2: Since the dawn of time, screenwriters have taken months to craft their stories. But now, three Hollywood professionals shall attempt the impossible break a story in one hour. That's right. Here on Story Break I, Freddie Wong, Matt Arnold, and Will Campos, the creators behind award-winning shows like Video Game High School, have one hour to turn a humble idea into an awesome movie. Now an awesome movie starts with an awesome title. I chose the billionaire's marriage valley. Mine was Christmas Pregnant
1: Paradise.
2: (laughs) Okay, next we need a protagonist.
1: So I've heard Wario best described as libertarian Mario. (laughs) And of course, every great movie needs a stellar pitch. In order to get to heaven sometimes you got to raise a little hell <laughs> oh, <that's> the tagline. <laughs> check out story break every week on maximum org or wherever you get your podcasts welcome back to bullseye i'm jesse thorne my guest Moira Tierney, is the star of showtime's the affair she also starred in er news radio and more she plays alongside steve carell timothee chalamet and amy ryan in the new film beautiful boy it's out now in The Affair, you have finally kind of made your transition to uh, contemporary, prestigious cable drama. (laughs) Okay. Um, And uh, I wonder if it was like something that you were thinking about for a long time. Like, you know, I got to get in one of those. I got to get in one of those. What did
0: you call it? Contemporary, (laughs) prestige (laughs) cable cable dramas? dramas? Yeah. A CPCD, as yeah. we like to call them. Yeah,
1: that's exactly, yeah. Um, don't, don't, this is, not everyone who listens to this is in the, in, is in the industry more. CPCD,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, don't start using variety uh, speak here. Um,
0: no, I wasn't thinking like that. However, I was very excited to get the chance, like I said, I was on network TV for a long time, eight, like nine, 10, 11, 12, 12, 12 years or so between those two shows. Um so it's fun to work outside of those constraints because I just know there's stuff that the writers wanted to tackle in here and there's certain stuff to subject matter wise never mind the language that they were unable to do. So to be able to work in an arena where you know you're not you're unfettered by by that kind of stuff. I was very excited about.
1: You must have been excited as the show went on and your character expanded so dramatically beyond something that you have played very ably uh, many times, but a a laudable, serious uh, wife or mother (laughs) character. Um, Like, I think you're real good at that. But as the years have gone on on The Affair, your character has really revealed a lot of dimension.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, hopefully. I hope. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's... All, what all of us get to do, because one the storytelling changed because it went from two POVs to four in season two, so
1: that opened it up, including your characters' POVs,
0: mine and Josh's, yeah.
1: And the show is told in in sort of in in the first person, so to speak.
0: Yes. Um. So that just opened up a lot more opportunities to to tell a story about who she was, who I was, and who Josh's character Cole was. Um. But then. Because of all the different POVs, we're perceived differently by these people. And so uh, hopefully, you know, you're getting to play a different version of that character. I think there's been like five iterations of Helen. I think it's like Noah's POV, her own POV, Allison's POV. I think oh, maybe only four. I think Vic got one. So we've we've seen this woman through several different pairs of eyes, and that's super fun. And she's not always pleasant. She's not always sort of virtuous. She's not always perfect.
1: Does spending so much of your work energy on thinking about personal perspective, because you are playing the same character, but you're playing the same character as seen by the other characters on the show, Mm -hmm. does that seep into your actual life? Like, do you find yourself... More empathetic or...
0: I, I do believe... I've always...
1: Not that I was accusing you of being not empathetic before. No,
0: no, or... no, no, no. I, I, no. <laughs> I'm not. But... Um,
1: <laughs> that's not what that's I've heard. That's a minor but flaw. I, I had not brought it up. That's um, what
0: I mean. I have other qualities. I have a good sense of smell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not empathetic. <laughs> um, no, I think it really... I do believe that every, you and I are going to take this, however long it's been, 45 minutes, away to complete. We're not going to remember it the same way. And that just is how it goes. And with couples and in a romantic relationship that's sexually fraught, like it, you're going to amp, the ante is up there. I think there, in the beginning people wanted to know, well, what's the real truth? What really happened? What's the real truth? And I don't believe there really is one. I mean, I guess we could have video cameras on us all the time. And and we might get some sense of that. But I just think in our minds, we nobody, we experience a moment the way we experience a moment based on everything that brought us to that moment. And you're doing the same thing. So you can perceive something I'm saying in a completely different way than I intended and or remember it completely differently and be positive. You're right. I just think there's a real truth in that. It's all we just don't know. Sometimes you just got to have faith on one person's memory or the other's.
1: Maura Tierney, thank you so much for coming on Bulls. I just think the world of your work, it's meant so much to me, and I'm, I'm really grateful to get to talk thank
0: to you. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here. Thank you.
1: Maura Tierney, Beautiful Boy is playing in theaters now. She's wonderful in it. And if you haven't seen News Radio, it's one of my all time favorite television programs. I mean, I am talking top five. You can also see her in Showtime's The Affair. The fifth and final season of that show airs next year. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Michael Kupperman made a book about his dad. It's called All the Answers. It's not the kind of stuff that he usually does. Copperman is a cartoonist and writer. His comics have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Believer. He's also the author of several books of comics. A lot of his stuff is surreal and silly, very funny. Like for a while, he had an animated show on Adult Swim called Snake and Bacon. And it was called that because that was what the two main characters were, a snake and a piece of bacon. But, like I said, he wrote this new book, All the Answers, about his dad, Joel Kupperman. Back in the 40s and 50s, when people were still figuring out how television worked, one of the first successful genres was the quiz show. At first, they were basically just translations of radio programs. A panel sitting at a long table, a host sitting at a podium or whatever, and the host would ask them questions if they got them right, They stayed on the show. If you saw Quiz Show, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, Michael's dad stayed on one of these shows for almost a decade. And it happened when he was a kid. So there was a time when his dad, as a 10, 12, 15-year-old, was just a little bit less famous than, I don't know, Abbott and Costello. When he grew up, Joel pretty much left TV for good. And he didn't talk about it much, not even with his family. When he did, it wasn't usually positive. Michael got the sense this was a dark chapter in his dad's life. So Michael did some of his own research. He went through old tapes. He talked to family members. And what emerged is a complex, fascinating portrait of his father. It's called All the Answers. Michael Kupperman, welcome to Bullseye. I'm happy to have you on the show. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be here. So your book is about your father's history as a quiz kid and the effects that it had on him and your family. What is a quiz kid? Or I should say, what was a quiz kid?
2: Quiz Kids uh, was a show that was on from 1940 till 1953, first on radio and then on TV. It was a very popular show where five children would answer questions that were sent in by the audience, and the three highest-scoring children would come back the following week. My father came on it when he was five years old in 1942, and after uh, an unsuccessful first attempt, he came back and was uh, a hit on the show and stayed on it until he was 16 years old. Um, So it really dominated his childhood and, and who he became. As I found out while
1: researching this book, what did you know about this part of your father's life when you were a kid or even a teenager?
2: Very little. There were still uh, reminders around in the culture. His fame hadn't completely faded yet, so people would sometimes ask me if I was related to him. And uh, there was, you know, a Rocky and Bullwinkle show where they mentioned him, stuff like that. So I was aware that he had been famous, but I don't think I really understood until I started to work on this book, the quality of his fame, just exactly how he had been famous and how emotional it was, uh, both for the people who were fascinated by him and for him personally, and what an effect it had had on him. In our family, it was always kind of a locked subject. It was understood that to mention it would cause him pain, and we weren't we were encouraged not to ever mention it. It wasn't until I started to really think about it that I started to see what had
1: happened. Until then, I thought it was just a story. We have a clip from one of the quiz shows, actually. Joel Kupperman in this clip is a little older. Uh, he looks like maybe he's 13 or so.
2: Here's a question. Here's another one. Another one
1: from Mrs. B of 319 West 48, Street. Name all the state capitals that are located on the Missouri River. Joe? Well, I believe Pierre, South Dakota on the Missouri. That's yes, very. And, uh, i <laughs> oh, see,
2: Omaha, Nebraska.
1: Oh, no, 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 nee. no,
2: no, 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 nee. oh, no, <coughs> Oh, I think Lincoln, Nebraska.
1: No, no, don't start guessing, please, because that's what I do every Tuesday.
2: <laughs> uh,
1: uh, Pat had his hand I up. I was
2: going to say the capital of Nebraska is Lincoln.
1: The capital of Nebraska is Lincoln. Yeah, he also makes a car too, but we won't do talk about it. Well, looks like we stumped you. Looks like we stumped you. All right, Joel, one more.
2: Topeka, Kansas. No, no, no wait, guessing, wait. no
1: guessing. Jefferson City, Missouri. I'm. Well, that's that's, that's all right. Now you got two, not two. Give me all the other ones. All the other one. All the other ones.
2: <laughs> <laughs> other one. The other one. <laughs> or the
1: other one. I'm giving. There's, one, 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 there's only one that it could be. And what is that? Oh, Bismarck. Bismarck, right?
2: All right, he had it, he got
1: it. <laughs> Generally, what was the significance of this radio show and later television show culturally? Like, what did it mean to people? Was it a truly big deal?
2: It was a very big deal at the time. And listening to it, it's hard to understand why, because really, it's it's generally quite a boring show by our <laughs> modern standards. But I think it was that the um, the decreasing child mortality rates and the increasing presence of media like movies, radio, and later TV meant that it was almost the first time where people were confronted with the personalities of children and thought, well, these are They're kind of interesting, even before they're adults. I think up till then, they'd been really thought of as imperfect adults. But there was a point at which it it became that children became interesting for themselves. And I think this was this was that point. And of course, it it was uh, followed later by the discovery that teenagers are really interesting. And that kind of overshadowed uh, this this interest in children. Did you know his mother, your grandmother? Oh, yes. Yeah, I knew her. What was your relationship with her like? It was kind of distant and uh, it was not very close. And I certainly felt that my father preferred it that way, that he had some issues with her. So uh, I wasn't that close with her. And indeed, I don't think I saw her after I was a teenager. We never corresponded. And she never left uh, California. So we would only visit her. And you could feel that that tension between them all the time.
1: What did you learn when you started to look into this about your grandmother's role in your father's life? Well, it was it was acknowledged even in the
2: 1940s when people were uh, extraordinarily polite about each other that she was the ultimate stage mother that she pushed harder than any other parent involved with the show for her child to be a star, for him to be featured, you know, for opportunities. So I knew that about her. It wasn't until I started to examine the evidence that I saw how far it had gone that she had really taken it past a point, I think, where any other person would have said, give it up now. But she kept trying to push my father to stay on television way past the point where it was obvious that he wasn't suited for the medium at all. And indeed uh, my mother told me that when she first went over to their apartment after the wedding, um, my grandmother said to her, how are we going to get him his life back on track? How are we going to get him back on TV? So even then she hadn't given up even after he was a professor of philosophy at the university of Connecticut, she still thought there was a chance he could come back and be a, i guess charles van Doren figure
1: so tell me a little bit about how he went from a kid on this radio show i mean a hit radio show to being almost a household name you know the kind of thing that the kind of name that could be referenced on rocky and bullwinkle a couple decades later what happened
2: well, there was something about him that caught the public's imagination. And I do think it was in some ways connected with his Jewishness and and what was going on. But he was embraced, uh, certainly from the age of six to about the age of nine, eight or nine. He was embraced by show business, by people in politics. And his name became a synonym for child genius. You can find Bob Hope using it over and over again in his uh, joke column in the 40s and people use it in all these different ways and he just uh he's just such an object of fascination everyone wanted to meet him and that went away as he got older uh he was he was less appealing by the time he was a teenager but there was still some residual heat from that initial fame that that people wanted to use you know like the producers of the program or my grandmother
1: there's a page in the book where you're sitting next to him on the television, and I can't remember whether, is it is it Laurel, or Hardy? Laurel and Hardy or Abbott and Costello that you're Abbott watching?
2: Abbott and Costello, yeah. It's
1: Abbott, and, and he turns to you and says, you know, they gave me a dog.
2: Yeah, yeah. It was bizarre because that was literally the only time in his entire life that I knew him that he spontaneously said anything about the show, and it was positive. That was literally the only time. It, it really took me by surprise. And uh, after that, I, I dreamed that maybe, you know, there was there was more, that I could get more out of him, out of, all, you know, all these incredible experiences he had and all these people he met. He'd been to the White House repeatedly. He'd, you know, entertained the Senate. He'd met some really huge stars even now. Um, But that was – again, that was the last time he ever volunteered information and when I tried to dig for facts uh, from him, I wasn't able to get anything else really. Not about, you know, certainly show business. I mean, for me, uh, a, a point that I'll always remember is when I was in college and I was getting really interested in old comedy, 1930s, 1940s movie comedy and I loved the Marx brothers and just thought they were amazing. And I was reading a book about the Marx Brothers, and I turned the page, and there was my father with Chico. And that was intense shock, because he was he was not a person who was very into comedy, and he certainly, I think, partly discouraged me from having a career that was closer to comedy, uh, he, because he considered it frivolous. To, so to realize that he had performed with some of the greatest comedians of all time, was kind of a hard pill to swallow.
1: You describe in the book uh, an incident when he went away to college. Can you tell me about that?
2: Yes. uh, This was part of a a blog I found online by someone who became, if not a neo-Nazi, then neo-Nazi adjacent. And he was using my father as an example of a degenerate Jewish specimen, but he part of this were, was his recollections of their time together at University of Chicago, which I took to be probably true. Again, it was my father denied that he had gone through anything like that at college, but that just doesn't make sense. And uh, the stories that this person were telling was, was telling made a lot of sense. And it sounds like my father was horribly bullied uh, at times at school. That uh, in this incident that was described on this person's blog proudly, may I add, it was, uh, you know, he he had his clothing dragged off, uh, torn off him and thrown out the window, garbage dumped on him and all his clothes, you know, covered in garbage. And the person also said that he had night terrors, that he would scream in the middle of the night, you know, wake up screaming. You know, it's the the description of someone who was traumatized in his undergoing further trauma. And then again, there's this moment in the book that was one of the few moments my father would return to if he ever talked about this period in his life. It was always that this professor had told him, you should leave the country, which apparently he'd never thought of before. But he took that advice and that at least for a few years rescued him. He went away to Cambridge, right? He went away to Cambridge. Um, he came back two years later to visit and unfortunately went on this quiz show, which in some ways I think was the final nail in the the coffin of his, you know, feeling like he could ever be seen in public again. Uh, the, the guilt and shame of, of that incident, I think, really haunted him uh, for the rest of his life. And then he came back permanently three years later, uh, got another degree at Harvard, and then locked himself away in Mansfield, Connecticut for pretty much almost the rest of his
1: life. You'll hear the rest of my conversation with Michael Kupperman after a quick break. We'll talk about why he had an easy time drawing his father in the book, but struggled to draw himself. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Sam Sanders here. This week I'm talking to Abby Jacobson. You know her from her Comedy
2: Central show, Broad City. We're going to talk about a solo cross country road trip Abby took recently and why she wrote a book all about it. That is on the latest episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR.
1: How does this sound? A weekend on a beautiful mountaintop in California. You wake up, eat a tasty meal with some new friends, some old friends, maybe the host of your favorite podcasts. After that, it's a couple of inspiring classes, spectacular podcast tapings, a hilarious stand-up showcase, a dance party, and more. And s'mores! All of this can be yours at Max FunCon, returning to Lake Arrowhead next June. Tickets go on sale Friday, November 23rd. Put that on your calendar because Max FunCon tickets always sell out.
0: Get a head start planning your next summer vacation and go to MaxFunCon.com to learn more.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Michael Kupperman is a cartoonist and writer whose work has appeared in The New York Times, The Believer, and on shows like Robert Smigel's TV Funhouse. He has a new book out. It's called All the Answers. It's a graphic memoir about his father's time as a TV quiz kid in the 1940s and 50s. Let's talk a little bit about the other show that he appeared on. When you draw the original Quiz Kids television show, it's obvious that television is still figuring out what a television show is. Yes, It it appears to pretty much just be some cameras or possibly even a camera (laughs) pointed at some people doing a radio show.
2: Yes, and they're wearing dark clothes against a dark background. Apparently, there was a four and a half minute improvised Alka-Seltzer commercial that sounds <laughs> amazing. I mean, they didn't invent any method of recording TV until a few years later, but it's a shame that none of this exists. It was a, it was shot in the DuPont uh, studio, which I think were literally an office that had been you know the wall had been knocked out to make it bigger, but they were. Offices with low ceilings and apparently the heat was so bad that everyone would be sweating, you know, heavily during this experience. I mean, if you read some of the uh, histories of TV in this period, they're just it's just incredible. The stories. There's a book called The Box by Jeff Kisseloff that is uh, is really terrific. But, uh, yeah, he was he was on TV when it was so primitive. They had absolutely, you know, very little idea what they were doing.
1: So, as the stakes got higher in game shows, both the sort of dramatic stakes, the financial stakes, and also the, you know, the emotional stakes, there was introduced a darker side. I think, you know, folks who were alive then remember this, and maybe folks who saw the Robert Redford movie remember it from the Robert Redford movie. Yes, But... What was the dark side of those game shows as they exploded across television?
2: Well, the sponsors – back then the shows had a single sponsor and the sponsors demanded more control. And, and the story was that the producers couldn't really stand up to them and they went along with it. So the producers started to demand the right to determine who won, who lost, and how. And so a lot of the shows became controlled in very specific ways and and rigged. So that certain people would win. And if um, in my research, I noticed that there were pretty open references to this in the press two years earlier, as early as two years earlier, about contestants being sent to take out a certain book in the library, wink, wink. Um, so I think the smart set knew that it was going on, but it was sort of like wrestling. Um, as long as the people at home didn't know, everything was fine.
1: Or even reality television now. I mean, that's the dominant genre on TV. And Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's an operation that lives in the liminal space between invented narrative and true or real narrative. The story is what's important and they get there how they get there.
2: But the audience is a little more aware of that these days. I think people wanted to believe that what they were seeing was completely on the level. And so the sense of shock when this was revealed was really striking. I mean, even Eisenhower commented on on the dishonesty and how this was unacceptable. So how did
1: your dad get involved?
2: Well, I think he came back to America just a visit and I'm sure that it was my grandmother who hooked this up through her contacts. I'm, I'm quite certain now that she had kept alive contacts and I think she was even feeding blind items to the press. It's one of those things I can't prove but there are strange items about my father coming into the newspapers time to time that had to come from somewhere. So I think she set him up to be on this show and I think his attitude, which is is quite sad, was I'm smart now. I'm not an innocent, defenseless child. I'm going to come back and I'm going to do what I did, but this time I'm going to get paid. Uh, Which, as I said in the book, that is the classic setup for American tragedy. You know, the one more job that's going to make you the money. Um, So he came into it with this attitude that, you know, he didn't understand that it was rigged and he, he thought he could you know, do well and and make money, you know, for the rest of his life. He had made very little money off Quiz Kids. One of the really surprising things to me was that they never asked for a raise. In his 10-plus years on that show, he was still getting the $75 a show that he had all along. So this was his big opportunity to make money, and I think what happened was he was on the show once. It went without incident. On the second show, they decided to apply their their rigging kind of protocols. And they had another contestant approach him with a book, and the either the title of the book or the questions in the book were the question he was asked that night on TV. That much I got out. So I I reconstructed it as as best I could for the book, what I think happened, but what I am pretty sure of is that he would have realized he was taking part in a rigged show live on TV, which must have been really intense and i think he he just wasn't that bold or that angry to blow the gaff on tv and he would have kept it a secret but he would have left and and just signaled that he was not coming back that was the type of person he was
1: why are there pictures why is this a comic and not uh prose
2: well i think prose it would be a very very different book um it's it's pictures because the book is meant to be an experience. Uh, you know, It's it's meant to be something that you move through. And so the pictures and the words together, I wanted also to have information that was only in the pictures. So that there are some details there that are not in the text. But it's meant to be, you know, a, a kind of experience like a movie or a dream you know that you move through and then it's over um someone actually told me the other day that they read it and then they gave it to their father who read it in half an hour which i took as a massive compliment that someone would be driven to really devour it that quickly
1: are there things that you can create visually that you feel like you can draw that you can't express in words
2: Oh, sure. I mean, I think a lot of my humor was like that. Uh, a lot of the humor resulted from, in in some cases, deliberate awkwardness. Uh, part of what I find funny is awkwardness or poorly rendered ideas. So I'm sometimes deliberately poorly rendering uh, things because I think that's funny. Um, I mean, if I didn't think that the, the art uh, brought an aspect to it, uh, I would happily abandon it.
1: It's interesting how much of comics is about controlling temporal issues like controlling pace. Like I think a lot of people who aren't comics creators or aren't passionate comics readers think of comics as being analogous to storyboards for film, but time is much more linear in film even though film is edited. Um, and, you know, features some of the same visual techniques. Uh, Like, much of comics is just about holding on to time and jumping through time in ways that don't exist in any other medium.
2: Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, one of the—one compliment someone gave me once, which uh, uh, I held on to, was that— my comics, particularly the humor comics, they used what was special about comics. I, too, sometimes read stuff in, in comics, and I think, why is this a comic? This doesn't need to be. There's nothing being expressed in the artwork that, that adds anything. Um, but I've, I've tried in my work to make use of the things that I think are very specific to the comics medium. And yes, time—the the kind of regulation of time is part of that, and the pacing. I read a lot of you know superhero comics and stuff before doing this book, and, and just studied you know the different kinds of narrative that were that have that are being presented these days.
1: In the book, your dad is almost always drawn in like three quarter or four fifths profile, sometimes in full profile. Yes. Was that a choice that you made?
2: Yes, absolutely. That was how my mind pictured him, Um, you know, repeatedly. Why do you think that is? Because that was his psychological aspect, slightly turned away, you know, never rarely facing, but uh, always turned away,
1: at least slightly. Was it difficult to draw him that way over and over?
2: No, actually drawing him was quite easy. Drawing myself was the really hard part. And ultimately I went for the kind of simplified caricature that's in the book. Because drawing myself repeatedly was so psychologically difficult that I I, uh, decided to abandon it. And I also felt that having a more universal likeness would uh, invite identification by the reader more easily.
1: I mean, you look almost like Tintin. Yeah, like a
2: sad middle-aged Tintin, which I think <laughs> is appropriate in several ways because you know, part of what being brought up by him did to me is is give me impulses to hide and to mask myself that I see now are inherited trauma. So for me to have a mask, you know, on during the book is is somewhat appropriate. And there's also the fact that in a way Tintin and my father were part of the same Ideal of of the young man, the boy, that was prevalent then, of this golden child who who could solve mysteries or solve math problems. You know, it was very much an image that was that was prevalent then, and not so much now.
1: Michael Coverman, thank you so much for uh, coming on Bullseye. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's been great. Michael Coverman. His new book, All the Answers, is out in bookstores now. It's a fascinating and moving read. He's also the author of a few other books, including the very, very funny Tales Designed to Thrizzle, Volumes 1 and 2. Every week on Bullseye, we like to wrap things up with a recommendation from your host. That's me. It's the Outshot. My therapist told me the other day about something called Incongruity of Affect. At the time, I was telling her about something awful, something that had happened to me, and while I was doing it, I was smiling from ear to ear. It's kind of a tick of the jokester. You wrap up pain and depression in a smile. I mean, can you believe it? Sort of what you're saying. I don't know if you hope that if you smile, it'll go over better, or maybe that you can convince yourself That's what you should be doing. On the cover of the Sly and the Family Stone album Fresh is a picture of Sly taken by Richard Avedon. Sly's in midair. He's wearing studded leather pants and an open shirt, and his big platform shoes are extended into the sky in a giant karate kick. His face is lit up by a broad, beautiful smile. It's a picture that promises joy, a man fulfilled, a dream no longer deferred. But Fresh is an album of incongruous affect. The first track on Fresh is In Time. As the drums weave in and out of the plinking of a primitive drum machine, Sly argues philosophically, almost cryptically, on behalf of on behalf of, I guess, taking care of business, which was never the strength of a guy who missed about a third of his own concerts. get faster. The lyrics say there's a Mickey in the tasting of disaster. In time, you get faster. He seems to be saying that he has grown from his mistakes from the depressive madness that surrounded him as the 60s curdled into the 70s. But by the time he gets to bragging about switching from cocaine to amphetamines, from coke to pep, as he puts it, the hazy, lonely atmosphere betrays him. Sly's charm is almost immeasurable. His smile is sparkling. But we're not fools. We know this isn't what happiness sounds like. It always felt like Sly was trying to will happiness into the world. I mean, how can you listen to Hot Fun in the Summertime or I Want to Take You Higher or Dance to the Music and not feel uplifted? How could a dream like that, a dream that beautiful, not change the world? But by Fresh, the dream was stumbling. The world didn't change in 1966 or 1967 or 1969 the way that Sly wanted it to. The world was mostly the same. Maybe the same, but with a little less hope. So after There's a Riot going on, the dark, mumbling masterpiece of 1971, Sly receded even further into himself. Much of his band was gone. His sister and his brother were there when they had to be. Sly was playing the instrumental parts himself, track after track, alone in the studio. Fresh is the album of a lonely man trying to convince himself that in his loneliness he is free. Doris Day's hit, K Sera Serra, is transformed by Sly and his sister Rose. Day's version is a precocious tribute to the possibilities of childhood. Rose and Sly sing it together as a beautiful, bluesome declaration of, well, of a sort of liberation that comes from accepting that life is defined by pain. When I just... The aesthetics of the album were transformational. The drum machines intertwined with real drums, Sly's own muddy bass lines pushed to the front of the mix, the delicate aching vocals. It's easy to caricature funk as all platform shoes and spaceships, but Fresh is as homemade and intimate as any four-track cassette singer-songwriter, and twice as beautiful. There's no Prince, no Andre Benjamin, no Frank Ocean, without Sly's heartache without us sitting close to him as he reaches vainly for his freedom. In the middle of Fresh is a reworking of one of the band's signature hits, Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself Again. It becomes thankful and thoughtful, and the new song turns the thrill of the original upside down into an almost suicidal-sounding paean to, I guess, to simply still being here. Still rectifying, yeah, and straightening things out, he sings. I know what a good feeling. You're never in doubt. Sometimes I'm by myself feeling alone. I just look around and check it out, and then it's all gone. I'm still happy to be here, thankful and thoughtful, he sings unconvincingly. And the peak of the album is maybe the greatest song that Sly ever wrote, If You Want Me to Stay, a love song by a broken man who knew he could not change himself. One who just asked, maybe in vain, for acceptance. If You Want Me to Stay, I'll Be Around Today, to be available for you to see. But I'm about to go, and then you'll know. For me to stay here, I gotta be me. If you want me to stay, I'll be around today To be available for you to see I'm about to go, and then you'll know For me to stay, I gotta be me Fresh is Sly's last great album, recorded as his life and his health and his sanity and his career started to slip between his fingers. It's a record of just one man, alone, plunking out bass notes in a studio his bassist long ago abandoned, thinking about how he thought he could change the world, wishing just to be alone with his heartbreak. He smiles beautifully, but we see past it. That's my outshot.
0: (laughs) ¶¶
1: That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where this week we got a visit from our friends at the Los Angeles Times. Our thanks to them for writing about Maximum Fun. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows at Max Fun are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our interstitial music was provided to us by DJW, aka Dan Wally. Thanks to Dan for sharing it with us. Our theme song is by the Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries, for providing it to us. You can find it on their album Thunder Lightning Strike. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, hundreds of them are up on our website. I mean, I have been doing this almost 20 years now, since I was 19. Just go to MaximumFun.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, where all of the interviews and segments from this week's show will be archived, along with past interviews and outshots and so forth. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Don't just search for Bullseye on YouTube, though, because you will get this... EDM song that I'm not going to judge it, but I will say it's not to my taste. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.